good weekend, everybody. Are you there? All right. You're my most alert group. Come on. Slept in, cloudy weather. It's good to see all of you. You're, uh, I really hope you'll take advantage of GLS. And, uh, you know, a lot of companies will give their employees opportunities to go and be a part of that because they bring in world-class leaders. Uh, so different corporations take advantage of it. So tell your friends, tell your boss, and, and bring them in. And they're going to get a lot of great leadership lessons uh, taught by world-class leaders. You're also going to get a letter from uh, me this coming week. Are you excited? Yeah. All right. Uh, that was the best response I've had all morning. All right. And uh, it's, uh, it's going to come with this little envelope. And it's a reminder to you of an opportunity this summer to stay on mission with God by continuing to give your regular giving. Because I know a lot of you are going to go on vacation. A lot of you go to the cabin on the weekends. And I applaud you for that. But last summer, you not only went on vacation, but you took your pocketbook on vacation. And it was one of the most difficult summers that we've had here financially. And the church doesn't shut down when you leave. I know that shocks you. But it doesn't. Ministry continues. So here's a way for you to continue giving. It's really not about paying the bills. It's about honoring God, putting it first, and allowing us to continue the mission and vision he's called us to. So we want you to take advantage of that. And of course, if you're a guest, ignore me right now, right? But those of us who call this home, we really want you to know about that. Now we're in this series called Christianity and the Question Mark, Really? And we're dealing with the objections that a lot of people have with the Christian faith. So uh, when we first started the weekend, uh, the series two weekends ago, we talked about the objection that it's too exclusive. Last weekend, we talked about the objection that, you know, God really can't be loving and good and all-powerful when we have all this evil and suffering that's taking place in the world. And we answered those objections. If you missed it, you can go online and pick it up and listen to it. This weekend, I want to deal with a different kind of objection. It goes something like this. You know, I really struggle with Christianity, especially the teaching that the Bible is absolute truth. Now, it's not just people who are outside of the faith who struggle with it. Increasingly, what we're seeing happen in American evangelicalism, like our church, an evangelical church, is that the younger you get, especially in that 35 and under demographic, increasingly, you have many evangelicals who are saying, you know, I agree with parts of Scripture, but I don't agree with parts of the Scripture. And when you take that tone and attitude, in essence, what you're saying is, I don't believe in the certainty of the absolute authority of God's word. Now, why is that? Why is it happening to people outside and inside the faith? It's because there's this sense in which we shouldn't have our freedoms restricted. And that is known as relativism. It's been around for a long time since the Enlightenment, but it's really taken on a lot of strength and especially these days, it is kind of the mode or the attitude or the mindset of the culture. What is relativism? Relativism is the idea that truth is relative to my experience, to my situation, to my culture. So there are different kinds of relativism. For instance, there's cultural relativism. What is cultural relativism like? Let me give you an example. It's kind of an extreme example, but uh, I think you'll understand. Many, many years ago in India, there was a practice called sati. And sati uh, is a practice where a widow, when her husband's body is being cremated, being, being burned, if she really wants to show her love and her commitment uh, and her fidelity to her husband, she would, she would literally leap onto the flames of her own body and, and would die with her husband. 
And, you know, we might look at that in our Western culture and say, that's abhorrent, that's terrible. Somebody needs to go and tell them it's wrong. I mean, only on rare occasions will it happen these days. And in some places in the past it was forced, other places it was an option. But what anthropologists and um, philosophers will say to us is, we have no right to go and tell them they can't do that. We may find it abhorrent, but to their culture, it's acceptable. Just like in in some cultures, uh, mutilation is acceptable. Why should we go and tell them that they can't mutilate their daughters or bind their feet or whatever it is? That's their their kind of their cultural thing that they do. And it's not our place to say it's wrong. Maybe wrong for us, but maybe it's not wrong for them. Another form of uh, relativism is religious relativism. Look at all these religions in the world. Who are we to go and tell somebody that their religion is wrong? Even if their religion leads them to do some things that we would find unacceptable, that's their religion if they want to practice those kinds of things and do those kinds of things. Or objective relativism. My mother practiced objective relativism when I was growing up as a teenager. That is, I would argue with her once in a while. And when I would argue with her, my mom would say this trite statement to me. She would say, Mr., whenever my mom called me Mr., it was not a sign of respect, all right? It was a sign I was in trouble. She would say, Mr., if I tell you that the moon is made out of cheese, it's made out of cheese. Do you understand that? Yes, ma'am, all right? Now, the the moon may have been made out of cheese to her, but it certainly wasn't made out of cheese to me, all right? How many of you ever used that statement, by the way, with your kids, all right? It's kind of an old-fashioned statement, right? But in essence, what she was saying is, look, I said it, it's the truth, regardless of whether you agree or not. That's objective relativism. What's truth to me is truth to me. What's truth to you is truth to you, even though it may be polar opposite. And then, of course, there's moral relativism. Moral relativism is, I'll decide what my morals are, you decide what your morals are, don't impose your morals on me, and I won't impose my morals on you. So therefore, in our family, if it's okay to sell our daughter into the sex trade, that's our business. Don't come and tell us that it's wrong. It's how we survive economically. And if I want to take advantage uh, at a brothel and take one of these little girls that have been sold in the sex trade, that's my business if I want to spend my money and live my life that way. And we could go on and describe many, many, many other kinds of moral decisions that people make. It's not your business, according to relativists, to say to somebody that their choices are wrong. Now, what's the problem with relativism if you take it as it is? The problem is it leads to anarchy. Because if everybody thinks they're right and everybody has a piece of the truth, you end up not having any certainty. You end up not having any guidelines. And if you try to create some guidelines and you try to create some certainty, well, who gets the right to decide that? Why should your opinion prevail? Why should your version of the truth be right? And think about that, not just here in America, but think about America as a global, you know, we're, we're truly globalized. And what gives our country the right to say and impose certain things? And you end up with all kinds of chaos as a result of that. I mean, it'd be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, if there was a creator that kind of stepped into the picture and said, I created you, and I've created you to function and live this way so that life will go well with you. Then we could all kind of turn around and say, okay, the rules are not coming from any of us. It's not our opinion. It's the creator who made the world 
Therefore, that's something we could all look to and follow. That's what God does. But as long as we reject that and insist that we're our own source of truth, well, we're going to have all the troubles that we have today in the world and the increasing troubles that we see in the world and the increasing anarchy that we see in the world and the increase of civil unrest that we see in the world as various political groups and religious groups and other kinds of cultures vie for what will be true and how we will live our lives. What do you do about it? I want to tell you about a philosopher. He's got a strange name. His name is Loyal Rue. He's a Midwesterner. And Loyal Rue espoused something many years ago that you'll find in the upper echelons of society and certainly in the university mindset. It's this idea that the Bible is a myth. Science and anthropology has proved it wrong, that the resurrection is a myth, Ten Commandments are a myth, most of the stories in the Bible are a myth, and besides, the Bible's antiquated. It is far too oppressive and far too restrictive towards the freedoms that we want to practice. Therefore, since we can't rely on the Bible anymore, what we must come up with is what he calls a noble lie. Did you get that? A noble lie. Does that, does that sound like it doesn't make sense to anybody besides me? We need a noble lie. So what is a noble lie? Let me share with you a talk that he gave. He said, a noble lie is, the, is an illusion. The illusion must be so imaginative and so compelling that it can't be resisted. What I mean by the noble lie is one that deceives us, tricks us, compels us beyond self-interest, beyond ego, that will deceive us into the view that our moral discourse must serve the interests not only of ourselves and each other, but those on the earth as well. Now, did you hear what I just said? That's insanity, isn't it? Hey, the Bible is a myth, so we can't live by the Bible because it's just too old-fashioned. But we can't live without something. We all have to kind of ascribe to something, so let's create a noble lie. And let's make it so politically correct that we get the biggest buy-in by people and we, and we try to live our lives by it, even though we know it's a lie. Even though we know it's a lie. That's weird. But that's where the world is. You know, some of the best actors, and, and I, I enjoy good acting, and, and uh, I'm always intrigued by good actors. Really good actors will, will become the, the person they're playing as they get ready to make that movie or, 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 or go on stage. They have an ability to take on the characteristics of that actor and, and to put themselves in the story and live and behave as though it were reality. They're the best actors because they make us think what? That it's reality. And when you see them, you, you think of them in the part that you remember them acting, and then all of a sudden you find out they're so different than the part they acted in. That's not really who they are. And that's, what, that's what's being espoused by Loyal Rue, that we, we should put out there a noble lie that we become so convinced in that we, we pretend it's reality. How did we get here? How did we get to this place? where we think like this, where, where we believe like this. I think the answer is found in the first three chapters of Genesis of how we got here. So we're going to do Draw with Dale segments to get your Crayolas out, all right? And uh, you can follow along, okay? And let's begin with God in the book of Genesis, all right? And God, he created two individuals. The male's name was what? And they were very happy, all right? 
And the female's name was what? Eve. Eve. She was happy too. All right. And God said to Adam and Eve, look, this is so. What I mean by that is, this is what I'm doing, Adam and Eve. And this is how I've created you to live. And here are the boundaries that I want you to live in. The garden is yours. Every tree in the garden and its fruit is there for you to eat and to enjoy. But there's one tree in the middle of the garden, Adam and Eve. That's my tree. Only I can enjoy that tree. It belongs to me. And I'm giving you this thing called your will. It's what makes you like me. He created them in his image and his likeness. And I want you to use that will to freely obey me and to honor me by not taking what belongs to you, by seeing me as your origin, as the center of your universe. I want you to see me as, as the one who gives you absolute truth. And I want you to just trust in what I say. And everything was going really well. And then one day, who showed up? Looks like an earthworm. Serpent, the serpent showed up. I can't draw serpents, all right? So the serpent shows up. And the serpent said, why are you trusting God? Why do you believe in his this is so? What the serpent in essence said to them is God's this is so is not so. Is not so. God doesn't have to be your source of truth. You can be your own source of truth. He's keeping something from you. He's restricting you. You don't have freedom. If you really want to be freedom, you become your own truth. And the world will be wonderful and your lives will be happy. Let me ask you a question. How has humanity done with being its own source of truth? Look at the world today. You know, I don't have to go very far to prove it. Look at our relationships today. Look at our own personal struggles today. When we want to go it alone, when we want to be the source of truth, when we want to tell God how we're going to live, it doesn't work. Because it's not, this is so. It's not how God designed it to be. So the question becomes, well, what is the truth about the truth? What is it that I really should believe? Can I really believe that God is the truth and that what he says is, is absolutely true? And is there really freedom living like that? To ask the question, I want you to take your Bibles out and I want you to turn with me to John chapter 8. And I hope all of you will. And for those of you joining us online, I encourage you to do so as well. All right? John chapter 8. Because we're going to journey through John a little bit. And I want you to take some of the things that we talk about home and really think about it, maybe have a discussion with your family as well. And even with, you know, your skeptical friends. Or if you're a skeptic, think about this. John chapter 8. Jesus has been talking to the people. And in verse 30 it says, Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Many believed in him. Now, just because somebody says, I believe you, doesn't mean they really, really believe you. What proves if somebody really believes you? They embrace what you say. They take it into their life. They begin to live it out. 
That's why in John chapter 2, it says that Jesus did not trust himself to many because he knew what was in the heart of men. He knew that there were those who believed him, but it wasn't like a full belief. They believed him because they wanted something from him rather than being totally committed to him. Well, what was it that they believed about him? What is it he said? Verse 12 tells us. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. So when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, they believed on him. He said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. But will have the light of life. I'm the light of the world. Follow me, you won't walk in darkness. You'll have that light. So people said, okay, that's, we want to believe that because we want you to feed us. We've seen you multiply loaves and fishes. We want you to heal us because we've seen you heal people and raise them from the dead. We want you to cast out demons because we know you have power over darkness. We'd like you to get rid of the Romans too. We believe in you. But look what it says in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if, now if you mark in your Bibles or highlight on your, on your iPhone or iPad, Highlight the word if, circle, underline the word if, because it's conditional. Jesus says, okay, you believe in me. If, he says, you hold to my teaching, you are really my followers. So here's the proof that you are really believing in me. You will hold, that means to embrace and to remain in my teachings. What teachings is he talking about? He says in verse 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, interesting, now we're dealing with truth. And we're being told that truth will set us free. Where the serpent said, Satan said, no, you'll never be free as long as you live under God's absolute truth. Because it's not absolute truth. You need to believe yourself. What is the truth that Jesus is talking about that will set us free? Are it is, are it, are the, is the truth his words that he spoke? Well, certainly his words are true, but that's not the truth that will save us. What truth is he talking about? Well, go over to John chapter 14. It's a familiar passage of scripture to many of you, maybe not to some. And I think it's important for us to always read over the words that we're familiar with because they kind of lose their punch when we just kind of rattle them off. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the what? Truth. In the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I am the absolute truth. I'm the absolute connection between you and God. There's no other. You can't arrive at God from your idea of the truth. You can't mix and match part of what I say with what somebody else has said, with what you have think and have a connection with God. No, it's my way. It's my truth. I'm the only means of the only way. That's why when you turn over to John chapter 1, the early chapters of John, the Holy Spirit inspires him to say something rather unique. He uses a word called logos. And that's because he's targeting his Greek audience especially. What does logos mean? Well, he interprets it, or it's interpreted in our Bibles to mean the word. Well, what is a word? A word gives you understanding of a meaning. So when Jesus is called the logos, in, in its literal form, the logos means the uncaused cause of everything. The reason behind something. 
So what John says is that in the beginning was the uncaused cause. And the uncaused cause was with God, and the uncaused cause was God, talking about Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's who Jesus is. He's the uncaused cause. He is the creator of the universe. Therefore, it's as though he steps into time and history and says, Guys, I need you to believe in me, that I am the means of your relationship with God, and that what I say, therefore, has absolute certainty. You can trust it, and you can believe it. And you know what they do? Instead of cheering for it and going, yes, finally, reveal the Messiah, the truth, they argue with him. And they argue with him over one little word. It's the word free. We know why they argue with him over the word free. Because they think they're free. We struggle with God's authority as well. I know I do at times. I know I try to argue with God. I remember when I was younger, I, would tr I tried my best to reinterpret the scriptures in order for them to allow me to do what I wanted to do. I know none of you have ever done that, but I did, especially when I was younger as a young man. Now go back to John chapter 8 and let's watch their argument. It's going, to get, it's going to get heated. It's going to get intense. So brace yourself. Ready? Let's go back to verse 32. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Boy, they forgot their history, didn't they? Remember Egypt? And right now they're in essence slaves of Rome. How can you say that we will be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Is a slave to sin. Well, what is sin? Sin is saying, God, you're not in charge. Sin is saying, God, I am my own source of truth. I will live the way I want. When you sin and I sin, right, what are we saying to God? We're saying, I'm going to do it my way because I like my way better. So Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, listen, I'll give you freedom. If you believe in me, if you believe in my absolute truth, if you trust me completely, you indeed will be free. Verse 37, he said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. You are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. In other words, you only have room for your idea, how you want to use God's word, how you want to justify yourself, how you think that by your righteousness you'll please God. You want to come at God from your perspective rather than letting God come at you from his perspective. Then in verse 40, he says it again. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. Now, why was Jesus put to death? You can't just blame the Jews. It's all of us. All has sinned. All of us put Christ on the cross. And all of us put him on the cross because we don't like the idea that he is absolute truth. Christ was crucified for claiming to be absolute truth. 
That's why today people will accept Christianity, they just don't want Jesus involved. Well, you take Jesus out of Christianity, what is there to believe in? Nothing. Or they want to reinterpret who Jesus is. Come back to the passage again. It says in verse 40, as it is you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. In other words, Abraham believed. What's wrong with you guys? You are doing the works of your own father. We're not illegitimate children. They protested. The only father we have is God himself. Hang on now. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God, here's what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Jesus takes them all the way back to Genesis again. And he says, look, I'm here. I'm telling you, this is so. You've got a choice. You can believe me and honor me and be connected to the Father. Or, like Adam and Eve, your first parents, you can choose to create the truth that you want. And it's not going to work. What will your choice be? And my question is, what's your choice? What's your choice? Do you believe in the absolute truth of God's word? Because I'll tell you right now, if you only want to pick pieces out of it, then how do you know you're picking the right pieces? In essence, all you're doing is carving up the Bible with the parts that you agree with. God says, either you take me as I am, or you don't take me at all. Either I'm absolute truth, or I'm not truth at all. What's the choice going to be? You can't mix, and you can't match. Listen, we have this idea in our minds that, that you can't really have freedom if you have restrictions. That's what the culture thinks. Can I say this? Forget it. I mean, forget it. If you're a secularist, it doesn't matter. There is no such thing as freedom without restrictions. Freedom requires restriction. Otherwise, it leads to chaos and death and violence and anarchy and oppression. Yes, I know that the Bible has been misused. I know that God's truth has been used to oppress and do terrible things. But that's because man misuses it. And just because it gets misused by some people doesn't mean you throw it all out. Freedom requires restrictions. So let me give you an example, do a little bit more artwork. By the way, if you like this and you want to purchase it, just, uh, just email us and I'll sign it for you. And uh, you, can, you can frame it and put it up in your house. And um, probably worth a lot of money, all right? So when Marsh and I were raising our kids and when they were all young together, we were living in California at the time, terrible place to live. And... Um, we uh, were in Northern California, which is very hilly. I'll tell you why I said that. And we had a fence in our backyard. We, in essence, didn't have a, a front yard, not much of a front yard. And so we had our kids. We had our son, Ben, and we had our daughter, Bethany. And I don't know if they're watching right now. I, I apologize if this doesn't quite look like you guys now. And then our youngest son, Tim, okay? 
And we said to them, you guys can play in the backyard wherever you want. You can have your friends over, and you guys can play in here, but you have to stay, and it's a very tall fence, you have to stay in the fence, and you can call it boundaries. We expect you to stay here, because this is where you're gonna have the most fun. This is where you're gonna be safe. This is where you're gonna be free. Now, outside of our front door was Seattle, was uh, uh, Seaview Avenue. And Seaview Avenue, because we lived in a, the largest unincorporated community in Northern California, um, was like a drag race. You had to be really careful. It was on, we lived on a hill. So Seaview Avenue went kind of like this and then went down. Well, if you didn't know the roads well and you're coming from the other side, you could get air going over it, all right? And it was dangerous. It really was dangerous. Now, what would have happened if I had said to our kids, you know what, kids, Ma, your mother and I, we don't believe in fences. We don't believe in boundaries. We're going to get rid of, rid of all these boundaries so that you guys can be like free-range chickens. You guys can be free-range children. You can just go wherever you want. I'm telling you right now, our youngest for sure would have gone out in the middle of Seaview Avenue and had been run over and killed. Not very far, about two miles from our house was a park. Chabot System Park, beautiful park, thousands of acres. And, and there were mountain lions there, and they could have gone wandering off in that park, and who knows what would have happened to them. You get my drift, right? We put the fence in place for their freedom and for their protection. Now, I want you to think of God as a parent, God as your father. God has put a fence called his word, his truth, around your life, not to restrict your life, but to give you freedom to protect you, to bless you, so he can bless you. For all of those who are students here, I know it's hard for you to accept that, but I'm telling you, look at the world around you. Do you really want that freedom that could end in you being killed on the road because you drank too much or with somebody who drank too much? You want that freedom so you get a sexually transmitted disease? Do you want that freedom? No, this is freedom. This is freedom. It's like when you get older. You know, you have to start to eat right. You have to start to exercise because there's something known as high cholesterol and diabetes, right? But if you say, I'm going to eat the way I want to eat, and I'm not going to exercise, I'm going to lay around, you're going to restrict yourself. As you get older, what's going to happen? You're going to lose freedom. You think you're free, but you're going to lose it. No, you diet, you exercise, why? So as you get older, you have more freedom. But I want to tell you what, the greatest, the greatest freedom of all is found in love. You can't really, you can't really experience the freedom of love without restriction in love. Did you know that? So on Friday, Marsh and I celebrated 38 years of marriage. Can you imagine she would want to be married to me for 38 years? Wow, what an amazing woman, all right? Thank you. I didn't tell you that to get an applause, but I appreciate it. Anyway, uh, we've been married 38 years, and you know what? We've had a, a great marriage. Like every marriage, we've had our moments. I've created most of them. But uh, listen carefully. What's made our marriage work is we have boundaries in our marriage. We have, we have commitments to each other physically, emotionally. We have commitments financially. And sticking to those boundaries has given us not only a great marriage, but listen, sticking to those boundaries has given, us, has given our children freedom, has given our grandchildren freedom. But you know, God understands the boundaries of love. Do you know that in order for God to love us, he had to live in some boundaries? 
He had to live in some restrictions. We don't, time, we don't think about this very often. But let me read to you just real quickly Philippians chapter 2. Listen to what it says in that passage of Scripture. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 says, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And in human likeness, he came to this earth and he died on the cross. So God, who had never before put a body on, Jesus takes on a human body. Boy, that's restrictive. The God of the universe created everything we see, comes into a body, and he was crucified, and he was buried, and when he rose, he had a resurrected body. And right now in heaven, Christ exists in bodily form. And he will come back in bodily form. And he gave up, he gave up his former eternal existence and put on this restricted body. Why? So we could experience forgiveness and grace and be adopted into his family and have the, future, have the hope of a future and assurance of a new body someday ourselves. Love required even God to live in some boundaries. So let me ask you a question. Whose truth are you living by? Whose truth are you going to live by? I hope it's the truth of who Jesus is and what God has said. It makes sense. It works.